You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Mark Miller, and this is the Earn and Invest Podcast. I don't have a great role model for retirement. You see, if it was up to my parents, they would have worked forever. In fact, my mother still does some accounting and is always doing continuing education classes. My stepfather still has connections in the healthcare world to this day. So when I asked them a few years ago if it was a good time to retire from medicine, they looked at me blankly. They vaguely thought that maybe I was a little too young or a recession was coming and maybe this is not the best time. Can't say I blame them for the lack of opinion. Who knows what the future holds? And whether you're thinking about retiring early or at a more customary age, one question is bound to pop up. Should I retire now in these uncertain times? Mark Miller is a journalist, author, and podcaster with a national reputation as a top expert on retirement and aging. He contributes regularly to the New York Times retiring column and writes monthly national columns for Reuters, Morningstar, and Wealth Management Magazine. Mark's website, retirementrevised.com, publishes a newsletter and podcast that features interviews with authoritative experts on the field of retirement. Mark Miller, welcome to Earn and Invest. I want to start by talking a little bit about current events. In this last year, we experienced a mass movement of employees out of the workplace dubbed the Great Resignation. Do you see any part of this phenomenon having to do with retirement per se? Yeah, Jordan, thank you so much for inviting me on the program. I'm looking forward to the conversation. And that's a very timely question, as you say. You know, the so the great resignation does have a kind of dotted line connection to what some are calling the great retirement. There has been a kind of a reversal of trends in terms of people participating in the labor force at older ages. The pandemic forced early retirements for probably five or six million people above and beyond sort of the normal trend line just due to the health risk. You know, people who, you know, a lot of people were able to keep doing their jobs remotely, but for those who needed to be on the job for one reason or another in a factory, you know, in a service job of one type or another faced, you know, the problem of, especially during the first year before vaccination of, you know, really severe risk of going to work. So you you have that. And then you have, you know, the the same kinds of reexamination of how you want to live that is, seems to be driving sort of the great resignation topic. Some of that also, I think, you know, can be found among older workers. So, you know, where we had been seeing a trend towards more people working longer before the pandemic, that trend seems to have been, I'll say, stalled. And, you know, will it resume? You know, I think it might, we'll have to see. And I think a lot of this kind of depends on the path of the virus, which, you know, I can't predict any better than anybody else. And I, I'll just add one last point on this, which is I think that the working longer trend in general has been one that we've seen more among affluent workers, more professional white collar folks. It, it has not been by and large a blue collar phenomenon. You don't really see people doing heavy lifting factory jobs well into their 60s and 70s. This is not physically possible, people get really, really tired out from those jobs. So the whole phenomenon of working longer was always kind of a more, you know, affluent kind of thing. And 
it, it's not like, you know, retirement has a thing has just disappeared. It has not. I and mean, all the data tells us that people do still retire. <laughs> do you think the concept of retirement has changed over the last few decades? I mean, most people don't realize this whole idea of retirement is a fairly yeah. new concept. Yeah. I mean, it's changed in a whole number of variety of ways. I mean, one is that with, well, let's start with it from a kind of a financial standpoint. So as we have greater longevity, the challenge of funding retirement gets greater because you're looking at funding for many people more years. Retire early versus later impacts that in a, in a variety of really, really important ways. So, so that's one important change. I think the other thing that's happened is that as work has become more flexible and more flexible options have come online for people doing gig work or part-time work or kind of, you know, starting their own businesses. You know, a lot of that's been technology enabled. You know, you do see more kind of reinvention. People may be retiring from the full-time job, but maybe choosing to do something part-time or launching a business, being a consultant, you know, being a gig worker. All that became so much more possible over the last couple of decades in a way that it really wasn't before the internet era. To restate the obvious, it hits me that retirement was very much a black and white issue a bunch of decades ago. And today it really isn't, as you're pointing to the fact that people go through periods of retirement. I'm thinking about my parents here, too, who left their quote unquote jobs or businesses and yet still did consulting and found other ways to create some income by doing something that was part of their professional career. Yeah. So there's that. There's also the the notion that for married couples, retirement is pretty rarely, you know, a synchronous event where both just decide to retire at the same time. It's usually a phase where one does and then maybe the other keeps working for a time. So which actually that can be very beneficial from a financial standpoint. And then for people who have already been engaged in, you know, more independent work, as you say, it doesn't have to be on an on off switch. I I get asked all the time, you know, well, when will you retire as a, as a retirement writer? And my answer is, I don't really need to make that decision in a, in a on-off switch kind of way, because I've been working as an independent journalist for 15 years. As you mentioned in the introduction, I work for four or five different news outlets. And so at some point, if I decide I want to start dialing that down a little bit, I don't have to necessarily shut it all off. I could start to do fewer of those relationships, for example, or I can always make a decision about my newsletter and podcast. Do I want to keep doing that? And for me, it's kind of a matter of shifting from that kind of paid work to other and picking it up on some other activities I'm involved in that don't involve pay, but that are really important to me and satisfying. So for me, it's very, I, I've considered myself very fortunate in this way that I don't it wasn't the reason I became an independent journalist primarily, but it's become a huge benefit that you have the freedom of, you know, kind of more control over your, your working life than you do when you have to sort of make an on-off switch decision about leaving a full-time job. I love this idea of this glide path to retirement. Mm-hmm. We talk about the glide path with our finances and with our investments, but I think we do this with our careers too. There's a natural glide path, especially I think for more white collar workers specifically or gig workers nowadays in which they can slowly cut down on how much they work. I want to bring up a question and I think we're going to dance around this question pretty much for the whole episode, but I want to bring it up early. When it comes to retirement, how much of this decision do you think we should be making based on our current economic climate versus making the decision based on personal issues? Like, are we retiring because it's the right time for us? Are we retiring because, hey, the numbers are looking good. The market's going to be fine. This is a good time to get out. Well, I think it's dangerous to do the latter. Yeah, I think there's been some discussion of this recently. PBS NewsHour did a really interesting feature a few weeks ago on the great retirement. And they were interviewing folks who had left the workforce due to the pandemic, but were deciding not to go back in because they felt they'd be fine in retirement, partly because the market has done so well the last couple of years. But, you know, as we know, you can't rely on what the market's going to do. It's going to go up. It's going to go down. And in particular, if you retire and the, the market experiences bumps or big declines in the first few years of retirement, that can be really damaging. And then let's just stop and consider where we're at right now. Like anybody who's thinking about a retirement decision right now and thinking about the current economic climate, 
wow, that's difficult. I mean, this is an extremely uncertain environment we're in, right? Suddenly we've got a resurgent in inflation. Inflation was not a part of the retirement planning story anytime in recent memory up until a couple of years ago. And when I say recent memory, the last couple of decades. So, you know, we've got, we've got that going on. We've got the stock market, which is, you know, volatile. We have the housing market up. How long will it stay up? We have the possibility of interest, the likelihood of interest rates rising, which is an interesting component. So the current moment's a great example of how difficult it can be to make retirement decisions based on, you know, what's going on right around you in the economy. So the question is, can we retire in uncertain times? And it hits me that while you're going through them, most times feel uncertain, but you did point out some specific issues that I think are unique to right now. Let's start with inflation. Obviously, inflation rates are higher now than they've been in quite a while, but we did face incredibly high inflation in the 80s. How did people do retiring back then? Because I think it would be, you know, maybe at least somewhat a model of what retiring during an inflationary period would look like. Well, honestly, I wasn't covering the beat back then, but what I can tell you about retirement and inflation is that in, everybody talks about how retirees get hit by this because they live on fixed incomes, which is you know, more or less true. But that leaves out an important thing, which is that Social Security is one of the most critical sources of income in retirement, and it happens to be adjusted for inflation. So every year, there's an automatic cost of living adjustment that's tied to the consumer price index. The one that was just awarded for 2022 was 5.9%, one of the largest in recent history. And it looks like it's going to be another really big one, but we'll see how things work out for 2022. But the, the way it's determined is the, the consumer price index figures in the third quarter are averaged together to form the, the COLA for the coming year. So what, what happens in inflation this fall will, be, will determine what the COLA is. But Social Security, generally speaking, is you know, anywhere from 35 to 40 percent of retirement income for most for, for retirees. So it's, it's really, really important. It's the only, in many cases, the only source of guaranteed lifelong income. So that's really important because you're trying to figure out, will income last you know, across my lifetime? It's an annuity style, pension style income, and it's adjusted for inflation. The, the, the general challenge that people it, you know, in figuring out whether you can retire, it's really all about, can I maintain my standard of living? That's really the key question. So this is a very much of a generality, but the, the rule of thumb that people generally toss out is you need to be able to replace 70 to 80% of your pre-retirement income in order to maintain your standard of living. That's very much a rule of thumb, but for discussion purposes, Okay. So let's say you're going to get 40% of your pre-retirement income from Social Security. It might be a little less. So the question is, how do you infill the rest of it? And that's going to most likely come from savings and investments, unless you have another source of something like a pension, for example, which some people you know, still can expect. So that's what you need to figure out is if I saved enough to maintain a standard of living be between Social Security and the, that figure that I need. Or can I make adjustments in my spending, which is also possible. You know, it's very possible in retirement to make dramatic changes in, in what you spend. But that's the equation from my perspective. We mentioned inflation is one of the things that makes these times quite uncertain. You mentioned the housing market. How does that play a role for people who are considering retiring at this point? Right. So home equity is one of the, for most households, is one of the most important sources of, of saving, if you will. I mean, people have plowed money into their homes over the years by making their mortgage payments. And by the time retirement rolls around, the preponderance of people who are retiring do own homes and, they and many of them have significant equity built up in them that can be tapped and extracted. It's not as easy. It's not a liquid asset in the way the a stock portfolio is or a savings account, but it is a choice. You know, you, and you can tap home equity any number of ways. You can Sell your home and downsize, for example. You can go the reverse mortgage route, although I think that's, you know, has a lot of pitfalls to it. But nonetheless, it's, it would be foolhardy to not recognize and at least think about home equity. Cause when you look at the household balance sheet, it's really looms large, much bigger for the typical American household 
than retirement savings accounts are. The other thing we mentioned briefly, especially at the beginning, is COVID. Obviously, we just don't know what's going to happen with it. Is there any modeling we can do? Because I know if I was trying to make this decision right now, COVID would loom large in my mind. How can we make these type of decisions? Is there anything that can help us? I don't, I frankly, I don't know. I mean, you know, I consider COVID to be the biggest economic wild card. I mean, we're kind of in a moment right now where I think the the mood of the country is we want to be, we want it to be over with. We want to be done with it. The question is, you know, is the virus done with us? (laughs) And we don't know, you know, I mean, we could be looking at more variants. And so I think it's really, it's tough. And I think, again, for white collar workers who've been able to work remotely, you know, are in a better, much better situation than those who have to deal with on the job aspects. Now, the truth is we're, we're in a much better place than we were a year and a half ago with vaccines, antiviral medications that, you know, boost the odds of surviving COVID. Anecdotally speaking, you know, I'm sure that you're the same, you know, I feel like it's been all around me this, this winter. I say everywhere you turn, you know, somebody who's had it and it's been kind of a, a bad flu and then they're done with it. That is people who are vaccinated. The, the additional wrinkle here, though, is that for older people, the risks are higher. So if you're over 65, the risks of severe illness and death are higher. And I think that continues to be a driver of these decisions about working. So it's very difficult. The risks are higher. And I'm trying to think, what direction does that lead us in? Does that make us think time is short? Maybe we should be retiring early? Or does that make us worry that maybe healthcare costs in the future will be high and maybe we need a little bit extra saved up? I think it's the time is short for many people. I think most people have a hard time doing the planning and modeling around healthcare expense in retirement. And that's a topic we can dive into if you like. I spend a lot of time on that. But, you know, I think it's more just thinking about human nature. I think, I I do think that the pandemic has just been such a shock to the system from so many people. And it has caused this sort of, you know, is a traumatic event. And it's one that has forced a lot of people to reevaluate how they want to spend time. And, you know, you and I have chatted about this a little bit. I've spent some time researching how people respond to trauma. And, you know, it can be a growth experience. And when I was doing my research on it, I was looking at it from kind of an individual standpoint. How do individuals respond to trauma? And what kind of positive changes can surface from that? But it's often occurred to me that the pandemic has been sort of a mass mass trauma that that has affected all of us. And obviously not the same, but you do see this. I think the great resignation certainly seems to me to be related to this notion and, and perhaps the great retirement. I do want to jump in at this point to some of the modeling, because I think as someone who writes about retirement, it's probably a topic you spend a lot of time on. We both have a common friend, Christine Benz, over at Morningstar. I think it was at the end of last year, they put out a report about safe withdrawal rates. And Mm -hmm. I think in our community, there's lots and lots of talk about safe withdrawal rates. Traditionally, from the studies back in the 90s, People were suggesting that you could safely withdraw inflation-adjusted 4% each year of your holdings if they were invested fairly aggressively, so to speak. Christine's report suggested a much lower number. Tell me how you're feeling about safe withdrawal rates today. Yeah, I think that sort of traditional 4% straight across the board, even the researcher who originally wrote that, that study Bill Bangan would say it, it's worthwhile revisiting it now. And the Morningstar research, there are other top retirement researchers who have questioned it and, and come up with different approaches, a Wade Fowl being one. And I think the consensus seems to be that number one, if you're looking for a straight across the board number, it's lower than four. It's probably closer to three, even a little less than three. But the other thing I think that people are increasingly concluding is that a flexible approach is called for and that if you're in a situation of a bear market, the market's way down, anything you can do to pull in your horns and, and you know, hold off on drawing down funds and, you know, liquidating it when the market's low is, is a good thing to do. And especially in the early years of retirement, you know, that can be very problematic. So I, I think the, I think it is a pretty good emerging consensus that the old 
4% figure is kind of out the window. When you talk about those first few years after retirement, I think that's really important for people who are thinking about retiring right now. It's called the sequence of returns. It's something that we all, especially in our community, worry quite a bit about. We possibly could be on the cusp of a recession, correct? I mean, as we speak right now, the market has been down for for a bit. And we know if you look at the returns over the last 10 years, there's this idea of reversion to the mean. We've had really high returns for the last 10 years. The likelihood that we will go back down to earth or even go negative for a number of years is pretty big. Many people listening right now might not understand exactly what sequence of returns is. Do you mind explaining the concept and why right now it might be a tenuous time to retire based on that concept? Well, it's just this timing issue so that if you wind up starting drawing down in a down market, there's just less in the way of assets left in that account to grow going forward. And it's important to understand that most retirement models now call for people to hold pretty significant amount of equity well into retirement. Like if you look at target date funds, which is, I think, a reasonable proxy for for that, um, you know, the, the big three target date fund providers, Vanguard Fidelity, T. Rowe Price, all have their models for equities at, you know, well over half, pretty, pretty well in, far into retirement. They don't get down to lower levels, you know, maybe till age 75. And so with that amount of equity still in your portfolio, it's just a very simply you know, if you take take on big losses early on, it's just very tough for those those portfolios to recover. I think it's that basic. So this is a kind of a timing issue. And it's one of the, frankly, it's one of the problems with a system that is so reliant on individual saving and investing as opposed to uh, more risk pooled approaches that take those timing issues out, off the table. You know, we've moved over the last few decades from a system where I forget the figure, but I want to say a third to 40% of private sector workers had defined benefit pensions to now it's, you know, maybe 15%. Defined benefit pensions are still very commonly found in the public sector, but not so much, you know, less so in the private sector, which means that everybody's kind of on their own. So, you know, making their own decisions about investments and about when to withdraw. Whereas when you're in these big professionally managed risk pool systems like Social Security or pensions, that really eliminates much of that risk. Because even though pension funds have a lot of money invested in the stock market, you know, they're looking at things over a very long horizon. So a market plunge this year might reduce the, the funded ratio of a pension fund by a few percentage points or whatever. It doesn't mean they don't have assets on hand to meet their obligations. So, you know, that's one of the things I like very much about that approach. And I really regret the fact that, that we've moved so far away from it. It's notable with the rise of the 401k, we've moved away from divine benefit pensions. For those who don't know the history, the good thing about defined benefit pensions is exactly it, is what it says, right? They're defined benefits. So you pretty much know what you're going to get year to year. Whereas with this idea of 401ks, we may have higher returns over the long term, depending on what happens with the market. But we certainly don't know what's going to happen from year to year. When we're discussing sequence of returns, having some bad luck right at the beginning can cause you all sorts of problems as the pot of money that you're hoping grows over time is much smaller than you thought it would be. Well, and the other benefits of a divine benefit, you're right that the big strength is you know what the benefit's going to be, but there are a couple other important benefits. One is you don't have to be managing this as you're going through your working years. It's professionally managed and t- it's just running in the background. You're accumulating credits and your employer's taking care of it. And then the other big benefit is that it's a guaranteed benefit for life. Because I think one of the huge problems with defined contribution retirement plans is it's a very, very difficult to figure out how that money will last throughout a, a retirement that's of an unknown length. So I always laugh at some of these online tools that are out there for you know, doing retirement modeling, especially kind of the free ones will say, well, tell us how long you live, you'll be living. <laughs> it's like, okay, roll the dice and pick a number. I mean, but it's, it's such a critical factor in terms of figuring out, will my money last? And the truth is we don't know the answer to that question. So, you know, I think retirement planners, professionals like to be as conservative as possible. So they'll often plug in, like my planner, I know likes to say, 
in our software model, she says, well, we'll live till 90. Okay, well, that'd be great if that happens. But I know that's the, you know, using conservative planning assumption. But you know, is that will happen or not? Who knows? Yeah, the retirement calculators even get a little stranger if you're one of those people who are interested in early retirement, right? So you have these people who are interested in financial independence retire, retire early who are in their 30s and 40s and are trying to figure out, well, am I talking 40 years or 50 years? There's certainly lots of room for error, which can have a lot of downstream effects. I mean, it, literally speaking, that model, the retire early model with if you're really truly modeling a 40-year traditional retirement, the it's get tough to make the the numbers work, but you know that my read of what the movement's about is less moving to a traditional retirement at age thirty or forty than it is to moving to a sort of alternative approach to work, which I you know fully supportive of and enthusiastic about having kind of done it myself. But that's the way I read it. It's like getting out of the corporate world, getting away from the, the you know the grindstone, and having a more fulfilling mix of work and non-work time and more control over your your destiny but i think it is tough to make that that's the critique of of fire i think from in traditional retirement planning circles as well it's very hard to make those numbers work with a 50-year retirement but it misses i think the underlying values that are being articulated that i think are really valuable plus the value of watching your spending and and saving aggressively. Those are, those are terrific values. So I see very little to dislike about that. We are talking to Mark Miller. He is a journalist, author, and podcaster with a national reputation as a top expert on retirement and aging. And we're discussing retirement in uncertain times. We're going to take a short break. I'm Doc G and this is the Earn and Invest Podcast. You know what? I love our meals from Factor. My son started getting them about a year ago when he needed a quick alternative to meals on the go. But where we've really enjoyed them is we've been remodeling our kitchen. That's right. We've had no access to our kitchen for the last few weeks. And some nights we just had no idea what to do for a meal. That is where Factor came in. We would just pop the meal in the microwave and two minutes later... We'd have a fantastic meal. You can do the exact same thing, and there's tons of variety. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggie. Also, discover more than 60 add ons every week. These are chef prepared meals, and let me tell you, they are delicious. No fuss, no mess. You just put it in the microwave, and two minutes later, you have a meal. This is tailored to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Head to factormeals.com slash earn50 and use your code earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code earn50 at factormeals.com slash earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. All around the world, tech companies are innovating and driving returns for investors. Our crowd analyzes companies across the global private market, selecting those with greatest growth potential, then brings them to you. From personalized medicine to cybersecurity to the $50 billion video and synthetic media industry, our crowd is identifying innovators so you can invest when growth potential is greatest early. Our crowd is the fastest growing venture capital investment community, and our crowd's accredited investors have already invested over $1 billion in growing tech companies. Now you can invest in DID, whose patented reenactment technology uses AI and deep learning to turn still photos into videos for Fortune 500 companies and more. DID has multi-million dollar deals with movie studios, social media companies, and online genealogy platforms. Invest today at our crowd. Invest in DID at OURCROWD.com slash EAI. You can join our crowd for free at ourcrowd.com slash EAI. It is the fastest growing venture capital investment community, ourcrowd.com slash EAI. We are talking to Mark Miller. He is a 
journalist who contributes regularly to the New York Times retiring column and writes monthly national columns for Reuters, Morningstar, and Wealth Management Magazine. Mark, we are talking about this idea of retiring in uncertain times. We've mentioned Social Security a few times, and I believe the timing of taking Social Security can really play a role in your retirement plans. Tell us a little bit about the nuance between when you take Social Security and how it can affect your retirement. Sure. No, I would agree. This is probably one of the very most important things in terms of decisions that can affect your retirement security. So why don't we start by just reviewing kind of the ABCs of how timing is involved as an important factor in how much Social Security you're going to get. The way the system is structured is this. You can file for a retirement benefit as early as age 62, but in most cases, people are going to benefit by delaying their claim. So for every month that you delay up to age 70, your benefit is increased to reflect that delay. Now, that said, there can be really good reasons to claim early. Let's say you're in bad health. You don't expect to have great longevity. And delaying your claim could be challenging if you're looking for a way to fund your living expenses, either by working longer or going down savings. You know That's not always something that can be done. Now, the Social Security rules on claiming are designed to pay everyone roughly the same lifetime benefit, no matter when you decide to claim. And that I'm saying that because it's driven around life expectancy tables. So if I claim at 62, the youngest age I can claim, my monthly benefit is going to be a lot lower than if I claim at 66. But I'm going to be claiming those, collecting those benefits for a greater number of years if I claim at 62. And on the flip side of that, a later claim is going to give you a higher monthly benefit, but for a shorter period of time. So if you claim before your full retirement age and I just stopped to explain what the full retirement age is. That's the age at which you would be entitled to receive 100% of the benefit you've earned over the course of your career. If you claim before your FRA, your benefit's going to be reduced a certain amount for every month you claim early. And so a, a simple way of looking at this is that a person with a full retirement age of 66 who claims at 62 is going to have a reduced benefit for the rest of her life of about 25%. If you claim at your FRA, that's going to be worth 33% more in monthly income than a claim just claim at 62. And a claim at set, here's the really the headline is that a claim at 70 is worth 76% more than claim at 62. So it's a very dramatic change in the amount of monthly income. How that plays out over the course of your life all depends on your longevity. And some people like to do this looking at sort of a break-even analysis, which is to say, you know, how long do I need to live before I sort of catch up with myself? And, you know, there's, there's a lot of data on, on how all that works as well. But if you want to look at it just from the standpoint of monthly income, later is better. And for people who have reasonable expectation of living very long lives, later is especially better because you know, as we mentioned earlier, this is an inflation-adjusted lifetime benefit. And even people with reasonable amount of saving, they can exhaust those savings when they get to a very advanced age. You know, let's say in their mid-80s or early 90s. And you know, women tend to outlive men. So for married couples, this the higher, you know, annuity style amount of, of income that's coming from Social Security can be really useful for widows who reach a very advanced age. So this is a really important decision. There's a lot of things that can go into it. And I think it actually is a really good area to get some professional help on. And I can talk about that a little bit if you like, because I think it can be extremely useful, a great exercise and even worth investing a little money in because the return on it can be kind of spectacular. I want to talk about this idea of outliving your money, because I think Part of the conversation is healthcare costs and something like long-term care insurance. But before we even get there, I've heard people say, I'm going to claim Social Security at 62 because I just don't think that there's going to be enough money out there to pay the benefit by the time I'm 70 or 80. Do you see any situation in which Social Security doesn't end up paying what it's supposed to or what they're saying it's going to pay today? Do you see any likelihood of insolvency happening? Yeah, this is a very important question, I think. 
what you describe as something a lot of people worry about. So here's the kind of the reality of it. The Social Security, Social Security Trust Fund is the entity that think of it as the checking account for paying benefits. Uh, dollars flow in from the payroll tax and dollars flow out in terms of dollars flow out to pay benefits. And Social Security has had, the Social Security checking account has had a huge surplus over the last several decades. It's currently at about, I think, 2.8 trillion. But the problem is that it's starting to decline as the age wave of boomer retirements accelerate and more people draw benefits. And also, importantly, because we've had relatively lower birth rates in the United States over the last few decades, meaning that there are fewer new workers coming into the system, paying into benefits. So those two changes, fewer workers paying in, more people drawing benefits, is on track to deplete the checking account. And the current forecast is that it'll be depleted around 2035. Now, when, it's, when the checking account is empty, it doesn't mean that the program goes bust and doesn't have any money to pay benefits. What it means is that there will be, uh, because there will still be money coming in the door from, from current uh, workers. The projection is that at that point, you would have to cut benefits across the board by about 20%. Everybody would take that haircut, current retirees and prospective retirees. And that's unless changes are made to the system. I, and the changes can involve one of two things. It can involve changing the benefit features, in other words, cut benefits, or you can increase revenue to the system. Those are the two choices, or it can be some combination of the two. Now. A step back and look at this from a political perspective is the way I like to look at it. The, the, Social Security is an enormously popular program. It's critical to all, all Americans. It, it enjoys strong political support across the spectrum, you know, bipartisan support, every demographic, every political affiliation. So the question you have to ask yourself about this is, imagine a member of Congress coming home to explain to retirees and people getting close to retirement hey, I just let your Social Security benefit get cut by 20%. And let me tell you why I had to do that. That seems to me to be an extremely unlikely outcome. The other point I would make is it's, this is not that difficult of a problem to solve from a math standpoint. There may be some politics that are difficult because if you, you know, whenever you're talking about raising taxes, that's politically challenging. But it's not a tough math problem. Unlike healthcare and Medicare, which is much more complex from a number standpoint, because there's so many moving parts in healthcare. Social security is pretty much of a well-defined box. You know, you know, the demographers can tell you what the workforce is going to look like, and they can project the payroll tax revenues very accurately. And we have very good information about mortality and longevity. So like any pension system or any insurance system, frankly, you, you know, the, the projections that the social security trustees have been making about the system have been highly accurate for many, many years. They continue to be highly accurate. So we know exactly what the picture is. We just need to, to figure out the politics of making changes. And th that 20% benefit cut would be an absolute disaster for, for, for Americans. And so I think the odds of it happening are pretty small. Now, Congress has continued to kind of kick the can down on the road on this thing for years. You know, there are various proposals out there for injecting new revenue into the program that would solve the problem and even make some modest improvements in benefits, kind of targeted improvement in benefits for lower income workers, for widows and survivors, for people who take time out of the workforce to provide to be caregivers, all kinds of things that would be good improvements to the program and solve the, the take care of the solvency problem. So I, you know, really hope that will be done. The last point I'll make about this is that if nothing is done and we get close to that 2535 deadline, I'm fairly certain that the emergency solution at that point will have to involve new revenue and not benefit cuts. And the reason is math. You can't at that point make benefit cuts sufficient to solve the problem. It's just not available to you. So the closer, <laughs> the weird good news of procrastination is the closer we get to the emergency point, the more the odds that Congress will have to come up with some way to just inject new revenue into the system. And there are a number of ways that could be done. You know, the system is completely self-funded through the payroll tax right now, but 
there are different ideas out there for coming up with new revenue sources for it. You know, you could do a Wall Street tax, for example. Another idea that I think is intriguing for improving the program's finances would be to allow Social Security to invest a modest amount of the portfolio of the trust fund in stock. Unlike a typical pension fund, you know, a private pension fund or a public sector one has a diverse portfolio of, of all kinds of investments, including equities. Social Security by law is restricted to investing in a special type of treasury note that's fairly low, low return. That was in the design of the program, both for safety reasons and also for an interesting political reason. When, the, when Social Security was created, it, it was actually the question came up with, you know, what would the investments be used in the, in the trust fund? And there was opposition to Social Security investing in stocks because it would look too, possibly look too much like sort of nationalization of the private economy. And so that's the reason we don't have any portion of the portfolio in stocks. Now, you could even, you know, a quarter of the portfolio invested in stocks would be a meaningful change that could improve the, the outlook for the fund. There's also kind of confusion on this point because when people hear investing in stocks, what some people hear is privatization of the program, like transforming Social Security into a 401k. But we're not talking here about investment in stocks for individuals. We're talking about transforming or restructuring the way that the rules for investment of the, the trust fund assets. So there's a number of ways to fix the program. I really hope that Congress will get on this and and do something sooner than later. My own preference would be to see new revenue, not cuts in, not cuts in benefits, because I think it's too important to too many people as a source of income. And if anything, I, I am in favor of making Social Security bigger as a benefit and not smaller. Now, you can make the argument that the, the wealthiest Americans don't really need Social Security, and that is the case. I mean, the typical argument here about this is, well, we shouldn't be paying Social Security benefits to Warren Buffett and Bill Gates because they don't need Social Security. You know, that's inarguable that, <laughs> that they don't need Social Security. But the truth of it is, you know, there's two things I would say about it. One is that there are not enough Bill Gates and, and Warren Buffetts in the country to make a meaningful difference in a program the size of Social Security. So it would be symbolic at best. And the other thing is that it, when you start cutting Social Security benefits based on means, it's a slippery slope. Because the, the basis of the program is a promise that you earn benefit credits through work and those benefits are promised and then paid out at retirement. So when you start saying, well, you don't need it, that starts making Social Security feel and sound much more like welfare than what it is, which is an earned retirement benefit. You don't get it without earning it. And so I worry very much about that type of means testing. There, there already is means testing of Social Security in one sense, and that the, ben the, the benefit credits are structured so that the, the highest amount of benefit return goes to the lower income workers. It's like an upside down version of income tax brackets. They're called bend points in Social Security lingo, but it basically it takes the benefit formula and chops it into three sort of a tiered a pyramid with the lowest amount getting returned in the, in the, in the highest bend point. So, we already have a bit of that. Like the low-income workers see the highest amount of pre-retirement income returned to them. So if you're high income, you know, it's, it's a less important factor in your retirement income picture, but still important. But it's really important for people at the lower income bands who are much less likely to have savings. What you say about Social Security is fairly reassuring, right? So it's a math problem and it's a math problem that's solvable. You made the point that healthcare and Medicare are a much more difficult math problem, not only on the governmental level, but on the personal level. For those looking to possibly retire in the near future, let's talk about medical expenses. Is that something we can easily model or at least protect ourselves against? You can easily model one piece of it, which is the premiums you'll pay for health insurance. And that from there, it gets a lot more complicated, unfortunately. I mean, I think the Medicare system is far too complex. I mean, it, it, it pays my salary, uh, if you will, because 
I spend a lot of time explaining it to people. I get paid to do that, but I would much prefer a simpler system that didn't employ me. So here's the deal. You'll see these big, scary looking numbers out the studies. Fidelity does an annual study. There are several others that say lifetime healthcare expense now projected for retiree from age 65 at $300,000, which is a, you know, a kind of a scary figure. But it's important to remember, we don't pay it all at once. We're going to pay it over a retirement of 20 or 25 years. So about, about 40% of what you spend in retirement on healthcare will be premiums, Medicare premiums. And the rest of it is out of pocket costs that are either co-pays, deductibles and the like. So the, the premium side of it's kind of, you know, reasonably easy to predict. And the way Medicare breaks out, it breaks out into what these parts, part A, part B, part D, typically part A is hospitalization. That's a free in quotation marks because you've been paying into the part A trust fund through the payroll tax as you do for social security throughout your working life. So you don't pay a premium for part A there. It does have a deductible if you use hospital services, but there's not a premium. You pay a monthly part B premium of a couple hundred bucks a month. And if you sign up for a prescription drug plan, you'll pay a premium, maybe typically averages 30 bucks a month. The, the, from there, the big variable is total out-of-pocket exposure. And there are a couple of ways to protect yourself from that. So when you sign up for Medicare, typically at age 65, you have two, there's two, there are two main pathways that you can go down. One is traditional Medicare, which is fee-for-service Medicare. And the other is Medicare Advantage, which is sort of a privatized managed care alternative to the traditional program where you, you join an advantage plan, manages all of your care. It, it comes with a out-of-pocket limit, uh, annual out-of-pocket limit, typically about $5,000 a year. If you join traditional Medicare, that has no built-in out-of-pocket cap. And people deal with that one of several ways. Some people get, so you deal with it by having supplemental coverage. And you can get that a few different ways. Some people get it as a retiree benefit from a former employer might provide a supplemental benefit that caps your out-of-pocket costs and pays some out-of-pocket costs. And then some people buy Medigap policies, which are commercially offered supplemental coverage that can, the most robust versions, basically take all out-of-pocket off the table. So you pay your premium for, let's say, a, a, a D Medigap plan, letter D, couple hundred bucks a month probably and you're that's it you're done it's going to cover almost almost all of your out-of-pocket expense makes your spending through retirement much more predictable those premium costs can and will escalate as you age but that's it's a smoothing effect right takes out volatility interestingly about 10 percent of people in traditional medicare have no supplemental coverage a bad idea <laughs> don't do that if you're going to be in traditional Medicare, have some supplemental protection. I'm a fan of traditional Medicare over M Medicare Advantage because I like the broader access to healthcare providers. You can see any healthcare provider in the United States virtually th that accepts Medicare, and most do. That's because that's a really unique thing right now. I mean, most people in employer-based healthcare don't have that kind of breadth of access. You know, you, most of us are now dealing with you know, provider networks through HMO or PPO, right? So I'm a fan of traditional Medicare, uh, but you need supplemental coverage. So in terms of back to that, where we started here, you know, how do you model and plan? It's a matter of thinking about these two sides of the ledger, premium versus out of pocket. How much do you want? How much predictability do you want? If you want the most predictability, you're going to have a Medigap. You're going to be in traditional Medicare with a Medigap. If you're willing to Accept a little more unpredictability and volatility, you could go with Medicare Advantage. The only other thing I'll mention that I think is a really interesting option in traditional Medicare is you can also go with a gap high deductible plan, which brings your premium down quite a bit, but you accept an annual deductible. So, like I signed up for Medicare for the first time myself for this year. I'm 67, but I'd been, st I'd stuck on my wife's employer plan. She still works full time. But I decided it'd be a good time to move to Medicare, partly because I figured I should be eating the home cooking as a retirement journalist. But also, I, I was eager to get into traditional Medicare 
because I was kind of fed up with commercial health insurance and all the restrictions and network issues and paperwork and the, the nonsense they put you through. So I wound up examining closely for myself the Medigap market and decided that the high deductible option made a lot of sense because basically it gives you sort of strong protection in the, in the event of a catastrophic level healthcare need, uh, but if the premium is much lower. So I'm paying like $70 a month for a high deductible G, G is in George plan. That plan as a non high, as a regular plan would have probably cost me more like $250 to more than 200 a month. So it's dramatically less on the premium side. And this year, the deductible for that plan is about $2,400. That's set at the federal level. Medigap is highly regulated and standardized across all plans. So that means if I, you know, my total liability is the premium plus the 2,400. But if I'm healthy, knock on wood, it'll just be the 70 in any given year. So people often talk about Medigap and traditional Medicare is the more expensive option from a premium standpoint. But it doesn't really have to be if you choose this high deductible option. And from a total out-of-pocket spending standpoint, it, it really doesn't have to be the more expensive option as compared to the out-of-pocket liability that you could be facing in Medicare Advantage if you get good and sick you know, you're going to be spending a lot more out of pocket. So to me, it's really important to pay attention not only to the premiums, but to total out of pocket liability. There's a natural tendency people have to just think about premium because it's kind of the easy thing to look at. It's the sticker price. It feels like the sticker price, right? It's kind of when you're shopping for these things, oh, this one's 30 a month, that one's 50 a month. I'll go with the third, but you got to look under the hood. What are the deductibles? What are the out of pockets and the cost sharing? Unfortunately, it's really too bad that the system is so complex. It's, I think, tough for most people to fathom and, and navigate. And, you know, the other thing that's kind of unfortunate is the data tell us that most people are not spending the time to kind of shop these plans and reshop them. Like in the, if you have a prescription drug plan, it's a good idea to reshop that every year because your drug needs may have changed. The plan changes, you know, the, the insurance companies will change the formularies from year to year on what's covered and how they're covered. What's in tier one? What's in tier two? What's in tier three? It's ridiculously complicated. But a good rule of thumb is there's an open enrollment every fall. And it's a good idea to recheck, recheck your drug coverage because you might be able to save a lot of money by, by switching plans. Long-winded answer, but you know Medicare is just so complicated. And Mark, I feel like when we're talking about Medicare and healthcare in general, there is an elephant in the room and that's long-term care. A lot of people don't realize that Medicare doesn't really cover long-term care. So acute care is covered if you end up in the hospital, if you end up in a nursing home for a set amount of time. But if you have to live in a nursing home or if you have to live in assisted living or if you need a caregiver in your home for long-term, those are generally out-of-pocket costs. We used to talk a lot about long-term care insurance. Is that something people are still doing from what I've kind of heard in the community, it can be incredibly expensive nowadays. This is like the most dysfunctional part of the retirement safety net. There is not a good answer. The long-term insurance, long-term care insurance market is kind of dysfunctional, shrinking, plagued by high premiums and very high premium increases from year to year. It is a product with very low market penetration. If you look at sort of the total market of, of people who might, you know, might purchase it, you know, from their fifties and onward. So there's, it's really, there is not a great solution out there. Now, Medicare will cover a hundred days in a skilled nursing facility following a hospitalization. That's, that's it pretty much. Beyond that, you know, a lot, Medicaid is actually the largest funder of long-term care insurance in the country. It funds well over half of all long-term care need. The pandemic introduced a new dimension here in that there's been a lot more focus on community-based care because of the really horrendously high death rates that were experienced in nursing homes in the early part of the pandemic. It has soured people even more on institutional care than they already were. And yet, you know, there's, I think, big questions out there about the ability of communities to provide what's needed for people, not only in terms of care in the home, but, you know, just what's in the community, you know, does the community have adequate social services, transportation, 
you know, options for people to socialize and get together and all that. So I think there's some really good innovative thinking going on out there. I've written some about this, about ways to innovate and do more in the community. It's less expensive to care for people in non-institutional settings, of course. And I think that's the direction we want to move in, but it's very challenging. And, you know, the fundamental problem with long-term care insurance is that it's not, we don't have mandated participation. So unlike Social Security and Medicare are basically mandatory programs. When you're working, you're contributing. And that makes the math work really well in terms of, you know, building a really big risk pool and having dollars available to pay benefit. I have long thought that a really smart thing to do would be to create a new long-term care benefit within Medicare, within what could be done in Medicare or, or not, but, you know, with a small incremental payroll tax devoted to a, a fund for that, you could get to a position where Medicare could provide sort of a base level of coverage for everybody. And then for people who have means to add on to that, they could certainly do that. You, know, you could purchase additional benefits. So kind of a hybrid of public and private, which is fundamentally what we have in Medicare, right? Medicare is fundamentally a private public program and that's working great. It, it's, insurance companies certainly love it. I don't, I don't know what would not be great about that from an insurance company perspective. If, I think it'd be a way to revitalize long-term care insurance. If you knew that the government was providing a base level benefit that everybody knew they, they could access, it would take the pressure off Medicaid because you'd shift all that spending that's going on in Medicaid into this new program, or certainly a lot of it. Medicaid is a federal and state program, so it would be great news for the states because the states would have, wouldn't have to spend as much on, on long-term care. But this is really the, the biggest hole in the safety net for retirement, and we just don't have a good approach to it right now. What does it mean for people in terms of planning? Well, you know, if you're saving, for people who have high amounts of saving, it's possible to do some modeling against the long-term care need. And, you know, if you work with a planner or do this yourself, you can do some what-if scenarios. What if I needed a high amount of money for a couple of years for care late in life? And you can kind of stress test your retirement plan for that. And that's what I would recommend for people of, of means is like build something into your plan. And, and just like we were talking earlier about conservative planning, assume you're going to live to 90, 95, even though you might not. Also, do this kind of conservative planning. You know, stress test your plan for two or three years of a long-term care need for yourself and, and or a spouse. The odds that for a married couple, the odds that both would need three years of care is quite low, but that's how you can stress test it. And the caveat to this conversation, you mentioned that Medicaid right now is the largest long-term care provider. For people who are wondering or know something about this, just to realize that Medicaid is very means tested. In fact, you have to, in order to use the Medicaid benefit, you have to qualify for Medicaid, which means you have to spend down almost all your wealth, which means if you are looking to support a spouse or children in the future or leave an inheritance, that has to all pretty much be used up for the most part to get to the point where Medicaid will then cover long-term care. So just, just a point I wanted to make because sometimes people don't realize that nuance Right. Thanks for bringing that up because that's important. I mean, Medicaid is really there for low-income people or people who somehow find a way to make themselves low-income. It's not really the recommended solution for for people and me. So they've this weird situation where uh, middle-class people are the people who probably would benefit the most from long-term care insurance, whether public or private, but it's too expensive. And people who are very affluent don't really need long-term care insurance because they can self-fund. Yeah. And so it's a very dysfunctional situation. So I feel like we've talked a lot about the risks of retiring in an uncertain time. We've touched on this a little bit, but I want to end the show by talking about this idea of why not just keep working. The risks the other way, which we don't always talk about. And I just wonder your take on this idea of working past when you need to, especially maybe at a job you don't like. Right. So, you know, this whole discussion of working longer is often a very much of a financial discussion. It's kind of a personal finance discussion. And there's no doubt that working longer can be hugely beneficial 
to improving your retirement security for several reasons. One is it can enable later social security filing. And when I say enable, I mean your earning income that can meet your living expenses while you delay. It can mean more years of saving for retirement, which can be hugely important, especially late in career when you're probably near the peak of your earning. And also it means fewer years that you have to fund retirement. More years you work, you're chopping off some years that you need to fund. So the math on working longer is hard to argue with. But what it misses is kind of the, I think, the values discussion because time has value. Our time has value. And I think this is a lot of what sort of the great retirement and great, great resignation discussions all about. Time is hugely valuable to us. And, you know, for people who contemplate mortality, you know, you, you think that through, you know, you, you, we don't live forever. This was one of the themes that I explored in my book a few years ago, Old Stories of Trauma and Transformation, which was this thing we talked about earlier, dealing with kind of post-traumatic growth and thinking through purpose and rediscovered meaning in life. And so I, I, you know, readers often misread me as saying, when I talk about working longer, saying, well, you're telling everybody to work longer. You're telling everybody to wait till 70 to file for social security. That's not really what I'm saying. I'm just trying to lay out the options for people. So working longer is definitely a path for improved retirement security. But I think the other side of the coin is really, really important to think about. Well, Mark, I wanted to thank you for coming on the show today. You know, what I take from our discussion is there's no question that these are uncertain times. On the other hand, as you say, there is a value to the cost or there's a value to time and how we use that time. I think the hybrid models are what's going to win out. I think many of us will not go to a full retirement, but we also will start subtracting out those things of from our work life that we don't want or don't need such that we have income so that we don't have to draw down to such a great extent. On the other hand, we're being smart and being careful because we just don't know what the future has in store for us. I think that's a really exciting way to do it if you can do it. And I think the question I have is how widely available will that path be? I feel really fortunate to be, to be I think, among the people you're describing. I, I fully expect to do it that way. I, I worry that not enough people will have that choice available to them. Yeah, I, I think we tend to think sometimes that it's a total white collar, blue collar situation. But I will tell you, I know lots of people in blue collar jobs who found ways to cut down on their hours, who found ways to do mostly the enjoyable part of their work. I work in a hospice and the certified nursing assistants, often it's a very laborious job. And I've seen people as they get towards the end of their career, put in less hours or do slightly different activities such that they still can keep doing those things they enjoy without having the strain of what it feels like to be in a full-time job. But mm -hmm. I agree. I think in, in a better world, we all have the chance to use that glide path. Yes, definitely. I want to end this episode the way I end every episode by asking you what is up next in your life. And if people want to learn more about our conversation, where can they reach out to you? So first and foremost, what is coming in the future for Mark Miller? So I have a book coming out in January, 2023 called Retirement Reboot, which looks at, it's really focused on, on readers who might be getting close to retirement, but are not financially prepared. And so what are some things you can do uh, relatively late in the game? to improve retirement outcomes. That's the whole focus of the book. Beyond that, what's new in my life is I'm a new grandparent, which I'm hugely excited about. Congrats. Uh, I've got a bunch of other things that I do outside of work, volunteer projects and this, that, and the other. So I'm a musician, so I play in a couple of bands. So as I do less work, I'll be doing more of that. So yeah, I've got plenty going on in my life, but I'm excited about the book coming out next year. And hopefully I'll come back and talk with you more about that when the time is right. Most definitely. And if people want to get in touch with you or sure. at least hear updates about the book, yeah. what's the easiest way to do that? So I do a weekly newsletter and you can go to my website, retirementrevised.com, and you'll see a link to sign up for the newsletter. Or you can find me on, for those of you who know Substack, that's where the newsletter comes from. You can find me on that, on substack.com as well. So it's a weekly newsletter and podcast, and that's the best way to keep up. And with what I'm doing, you know, if you're into social media, I, I'm on Twitter and Facebook, but I'd say the newsletter is where I focus most of my attention outside of the writing I'm doing for the Times and Reuters and the like. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank Mark Miller. That's a wrap. 
Awesome. Right. I usually keep the recording going just to catch some of our conversation afterwards. Um, but is there anything you feel like we didn't cover? Any like big pretty, thing? It was pretty comprehensive. I mean, we talked about Social Security and Medicare, which are always my number one, two topics. No, yeah. it was good. I think it's a great and very timely conversation, right? Because I, we get caught up, I think, in this idea of retirement, but then we also get caught up on this uncertainty. And I don't think many people know how to mesh the two ideas together and and come to some kind of consensus in their own mind of, of how am I going to actually figure this out? And so me as a 48-year-old, I can always say, say, well, I have time. I can find other things I want to do. I've been a big proponent of FIRE, so I've at least done a good job of, of trying to get my finances in order at a young age. So, you know, regardless if the safe withdrawal is 3 or 3.5 or 4, right. I still at least am in a place where I can have some real decision. Yeah, nothing like starting earlier. Yeah, but I think there are a lot of people who just aren't sure. And, and trying to figure out that balance, I think it's a really big balance. And you and I have talked about it a bunch, but just this idea of quality of life versus running out of money too quickly, <laughs> which you really don't want to do. <laughs> right. Right. I think that's where social security becomes so important. It's like, it, to me, that's the biggest plus in delayed social security claiming. You get that larger guaranteed lifetime check. That's the thing I like about it the most. And it's certainly, I don't really, I'm not a big fan of the break even analysis, you know, which says, well, at what point have I caught up? Yeah, you know, yeah. you can do those numbers, but I think it kind of misses the point. I explain that in the book. I actually run through the book, the break-even thing for people because I know people want to know how to do it. But then I say, it's not my preferred approach, but here's how it works. Tell me where you are with the book right now. So it comes out in January. Yeah, it's being so, copy edited right now. It's being copy edited. Okay, so yeah. you've done, you've done. fingers crossed, the really hard part, which is getting it all down. <laughs> getting it written. That was the tough part and getting through the initial edits. But yeah, it's, uh, yeah, and it's the forward to it is being written right now. Nah. I'm excited about that. The forward's written, written by Chris Farrell from Marketplace Radio. Oh, very cool. So he's a, he's a friend and he's done a lot of writing about retirement stuff. And so he's doing a forward for me. So that's going to be cool. Yeah. Very exciting. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast, so keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. 